You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. What is unique to the Christian faith? What is it that separates Jesus' life and message from all the other religions and worldviews? This question was the subject of heated debate uh, at a British conference uh, exploring comparative religions. Experts from across the globe got together to try and work out what is it that is distinct about the Christian faith. And one of the experts says, well, what about the incarnation? Someone said, well, there are other worldviews where gods appear as humans. Someone said, what about the resurrection? Again, there are other religions where people share stories of coming back from the dead. And so here they are at this table uh, sharing different ideas as these experts debated out when one man enters the room. Uh, Who is this man? His name is C.S. Lewis. 
And some of you may know that uh, C.S. Lewis was a confirmed atheist, a, a bit of an intellectual and philosophical giant who lectured at Cambridge and Oxford. And yet in his early 30s, had something of a spiritual awakening. He went from confirmed atheist to passionate follower of Jesus. And so entering into this room as these experts debate about Christianity, he says, what is all this rumpus all about? And they say, well, Mr. Lewis, we're trying to work out what is unique about the Christian faith. Without skipping a beat, Lewis says, oh, that's easy. It's grace. You know, throughout this sermon series, we've been getting up close and personal with real men and women who've encountered Jesus. And what's particularly inspiring in today's encounter is the living and vivid testimony of grace. It's amazing grace. It's a grace that comes from God that, that has no strings attached. It's a grace that transforms people from the inside out. What's remarkable about this grace is it not only sets Jesus apart from the rest, but it's a grace that's available for you and me right here and right now. So if you've got a Bible handy, let's dive into this story. We're going to uh, pick up the story in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. We read this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are the uh, religious, social, and cultural elite, right? They were revered and a little bit feared for their uh, devotion to God's law. They were incredibly strict characters, incredibly devoted to obeying God's word. I mean, these guys didn't get drunk. They didn't do drugs. They never went to the Booty. They didn't watch Squid Games. If they had a radio back then, they're listening to Light FM. They're very strict, conservative, devout people, right? And this is the house that Jesus enters in. Now, one of the Pharisees, a guy named Simon, has invited Jesus. Why has he invited Jesus? Maybe Maybe he heard about the miracles of Jesus. Maybe he was there in the crowds as Jesus was preaching about the good news of the kingdom. We don't know, but there's a sense in which Simon the Pharisee is intrigued by Jesus. He's curious to, to find out more. And, and maybe you relate to that. You know, maybe you too have heard a little bit about Jesus and heard testimonies of lives being changed by him. And so you're curious, you're intrigued. Let me encourage you in that to keep on leaning on in. Be open to the possibility that Jesus is not only real, but has the power to change your life. The other observation to make about this scene is uh, Luke is pointing out that they're at the Pharisee's house and they're reclined at the table. Um, one of the things that's helpful to know about the ancient world is that dining tables were low and, and guests would, would be sprawled out, like uh, reclining on almost like sofas uh, on the ground with their feet away from the table and their sandals off. I must confess that 2,000 years on, this is still my favorite way to eat. 
just sprawled out on the couch, one hand on the remote, the other hand on a bucket of KFC. I used to think it was lazy. Now we can see it's biblical, right? So here they are. They're reclined out. They're having a meal together. They're in the house of a Pharisee. But look what happens next. Verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in their Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Uh, You might like to circle the word behold, because it means take note. All right, we might say, check this out, right? And what is it that has stopped Luke in his tracks? What does he want us to behold? He says it's a, a woman, and not just any woman, a woman of the city who, what? Was a sinner. A woman of the city who was a sinner. Of course, we are all sinners, but what Luke is pointing out is that she was a sinner by profession, right? Sin was her occupation and perhaps her livelihood. In fact, almost all people who you know comment on this arrangement of words that Luke used suggest that she must have been a prostitute, right? And such was her reputation that Simon knew at first glance who she was and the life of impurity and sin that she had lived, right? Unlike Simon, who would parade through temple courts uh, offering sacrifices to God, she would walk the streets of the city at night sacrificing her body. Unlike Simon, who committed his life to obeying God's law, she lived a reckless life, abandoning God's word and, and living a life for herself. Now, is Simon the only one who is aware of her sin? Is he the only one who knows this? Of course not. Need to appreciate that Jesus himself was neither ignorant of her sin nor indifferent toward her sin. Right in the story, the parable that we'll check out in just a moment, it's very clear that Jesus is very much aware of her life and her sin. Right? Jesus is not blind to her sin. Jesus knows her sin. Right? Charles Spurgeon says this so poetically and so well. He says, Our Lord allowed her to wash his feet with her tears, but Jesus knew well what those tears had looked upon. When he allowed those lips to kiss his feet, he knew right well what language those lips had used in years gone by. And when he suffered, her to show her love to him. He knew how foul her heart had aforetime been with every unhallowed desire. Her evil imaginations and unchaste desires, her wanton words and shameless acts were all before the Savior's mind far more vividly than they were before her own, for she had forgotten much, but he knew all. Now that's a sobering thought. Whether our sin is public and reckless like this woman or discreet and hidden behind closed doors, all of our life and all of our sin is known by Jesus. He knows the choices we make. He knows what motivates and occupies occupies our heart. He knows those moments where we have willfully embraced sin and given into the darkness. And so you've got to ask yourself at this point in the story, what is a woman like this? 
What's a sex worker doing in the house of a Pharisee? Look to verse 27. No, make that 37. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. This woman had heard that Jesus was at this table in this house. And she says, I got to be there. I got to be near Jesus. I got to see Jesus. I got to get close and give thanks to Jesus. Now, we don't know if this was her first and only encounter with Jesus. We don't know what had led to this moment. But it does appear to me that this woman had already heard the gospel of Jesus. She'd already heard Jesus talk about the kingdom and his offer of grace. And so no doubt in the days leading up to this moment, she had been wrestling with that invitation, considering what it would mean to leave behind her her old life and embrace the grace and the goodness of Jesus. Whatever it was, here she is at the feet of Jesus, at this table, eager to demonstrate her her adoration and praise for Jesus, right? Now, did she know the kind of disdain and disgust that someone like Simon the Pharisee might have for her? Of course, right? She was used to working and walking in the gutter of their contempt and their shame. She knew that, right? This was the last place she wanted to be. And yet such is the love and grace of Jesus that emboldened her and and gave her this courage and and this vulnerability. You know, author uh, Brene Brown describes shame as that feeling of like leaving a room when everyone in the room talks bad about you, says hurtful things, harmful things. And the very last thing you want to do is re-enter that room and face those people, right? We've all done things in our lives that we're ashamed about. Uh, We've all done things that we're embarrassed and, and, and humiliated by. And we all know there are rooms that we don't want to be in and people we don't want to face. Truth is, this is the last room that this woman wanted to be in. Their suspicion, their shame, their accusations. And yet here she is. Here she enters. The mask is off. Her life is exposed. She's not thinking of herself. She's not thinking about what these religious men are thinking about her. All she cares about is Jesus. All she cares about is Jesus. And don't you just love her raw and genuine, authentic emotion? Right? You see what happened when she stands at the feet of Jesus. Luke says, standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. You know that moment when you're trying to hold everything together? That moment when you're wanting to be composed. 
but your heart is beating, your emotions are swelling, your joy, your relief, the awe, right? And and then just all of a sudden it just breaks. Now, I've gone pretty well through this sermon not mentioning the AFL grand final last week, right? It's been 20 years since our footy club have been in a grand final, 57 years since we've won a grand final. And in the past 57 years, it has been a horrendous run. We've lost games, we've lost players, we've lost supporters. At one point, we even came close to losing our club. And so watching the grand final on the couch there with my wife and my kids, it was amazing. It was incredible. Uh, my, my phone was blowing up with people texting me, congratulating me as if I was actually on the footy field, right? The kids are jumping up and down. It was perfect and incredibly emotional. Now, am I saying that winning the AFL Grand Final is the same as discovering Jesus for the very first time? Kind of. But there is a sense in which the tears of this woman in this house are filled with just so many raw and joyful emotions. Tears for a life that she's finally letting go of. Tears for the pain, the difficulty that she has endured. Tears for the the guilt and the shame that she's finally letting go of. Tears for a new life marked by faith, hope and love. And isn't it true that her love for Jesus is not only displayed in her tears, but her display of public affection and praise, right? Luke Luke shares that that she's not only weeping before Jesus, but begins to wipe his feet with her hair and anoint her feet with her perfume. Now, it's been said that the act of unbinding your hair in public is very significant, right? Because in the Jewish world, women would never do that, right? That's something you would reserve for your wedding night. And so what we have here is this very deep and personal and intimate act of affection and love. And consider also the the jar, the alabaster jar of ointment that she pours out, right? This was concentrated perfume. And in those days, it would be locked in a jar that women would carry with them and sometimes even around their neck. Now, in her line of work, a jar of expensive concentrated perfume was incredible, incredibly valuable. And it was part of her appeal, is part of what she would hold and wear to make herself desirable to others. And yet here's what historians point out. Women would wear a a flask like this, uh, an aroma was with them wherever they were, but they'd never pour out the perfume. Why? The reason is that you'd need to break the neck of the flask if you wanted to pour out The ointment, in other words, once you poured it out, there was no turning back. It couldn't be used again. Do you see what she is doing? This is more than a costly act by a socially marginalized woman. 
This is a woman surrendering her all at the feet of Jesus. There's an old hymn that says, Take my love, my Lord, I pour at your feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. It's fair to say that many of us, when we come to Jesus, do so with conditions. I'm interested in Jesus as long as I can hold on to this part of my life. I'm interested in Jesus as long as I don't need to change this area of my life. I'm interested in giving everything to Jesus except this. Just so you know, a faith with conditions is no faith at all. Jesus will never welcome a part-time follower of him. He will never accept someone who says yes with strings attached. Jesus is everything to us or he is nothing. And that is what is so beautiful about this woman. This is why her story inspires and challenges us all. Has she lived a perfect life? Far from it. Has she been a good little girl who ticked all the right boxes? Heck no. But yet here she is, on her knees, tears streaming down, mascara across her face, giving Jesus her all. She's not only turning away from her old life, but she is giving everything to him. Look then with me to verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You see what's happening here. Simon is saying to himself that if Jesus were a prophet, he would never allow a woman like this to lavish him with such praise and affection. Why? Why is he concerned by this? Well, perhaps he's very uncomfortable with her public show of affection. She is, after all, a prostitute on her knees kissing Jesus' feet. And so maybe Simon is having a very hard time interpreting her adoration with the purity and righteousness it deserves. But I suspect that for Simon, this is also deeply theological. You see, according to Pharisees, like Simon, God's blessing was always reserved for the pure, the holy, people who kept the rules, people like Simon. And yet what is Jesus doing? Jesus is welcoming her. Jesus is welcoming her in, right? We need to remember that the Pharisees were, in essence, a separatist movement, right? They prided themselves not only on their obedience to the law, but their separation from the world. This is why throughout the Gospels, you'll hear that Jesus is often referred to as the friend of sinners, right? Now, we might hear that phrase today with warmth and encouragement, but actually it was a term of negativity. It was, it was given to Jesus to mock him, right? They, they couldn't piece together how this man who would talk about God and the kingdom would, would eat and drink with tax collectors and prostitutes and, and gamblers and liars and thieves and sinners. And yet this is what makes Jesus 
distinct. This is what sets Jesus apart from the rest. This is what makes Jesus and his good news so powerful. Even when Jesus knows that his own reputation will be called into question, even when he knows that by hanging out with sinners, even when he knows that they will question his integrity for welcoming a woman like this, Jesus embraces her. He remains unmoved. He loves the least. He cares for the broken. He stands on the side of the oppressed and he advocates for the guilty. You see, Simon looked down on this woman. He spent his life looking down on people like this. And yet the Bible says that Jesus came to this world not to condemn the world, but to save this world. He came to save women like this. He came to save you and me. And that means that Jesus will not only defend women like this, but he wants Simon and he wants you and I to see her through the lens of the gospel. Look with me to verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to Simon, you have judged rightly. Now, the first thing that Jesus is showing Simon, it's really quite profound, is that he, like this woman, is in sin, right? Simon thinks he's pure. Uh, Simon thinks he's earned his place. But in reality, he, like the woman, are both in spiritual debt, right? So in the parable that he lifts before Simon, there are two people, two people who owe money and neither of them could pay. And if you can't pay your debt, it doesn't really matter how much you owe, whether it's the 50 or the 500, you are stuck in debt and you will lose everything. I remember a pastor uh, explaining it like this. It's a bit of a ridiculous illustration, but stick with me. Suppose a spider crawls into the bedroom late at night and he bites a man on the neck and the poison enters his body and he dies in his sleep, right? Then there's another guy who's out walking in the jungle and a lion jumps on him and mauls him and pulls off his arms and pulls off his head and he dies in a bloody mess. Now, ask yourself, which of these two men are more dead? Answer, they are both dead. One of them is pretty dead. The other is ugly dead, but they're both dead. That's what Jesus is saying to us. Jesus is saying to Simon, it doesn't matter how righteous you think you are next to this woman because you are both lost. Whether you are religious or rebellious, you're both in sin. You are both uh, uh, separating yourself from him. You are both putting God at a distance. You have both put yourselves ahead of him. You are both under God's wrath and judgment. And doesn't that ring true? For you and I today, before God, we too are all in debt. Whether you've been running 
on the uh, religious treadmill all your life or you've given up on that long ago, we all fall short, right? We fail to do what we ought to do and we do things that we should never do. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, spiritual death, relational death, physical death, eternal death. And it is this debt and this debt that we can't pay our way out from. What does that mean? What does that mean, Simon? What does that mean for you and I today? It means that we not only need a right awareness of our own sin, but like the woman in this story, we need to humble ourselves and see our great need for a saviour. Someone who can come on our behalf to pay our debt. Someone who can clear our name. Someone who can set us free. You know, a few years after this meal at the Pharisee's house with this woman, Jesus would do something incredible for her and for you and me today. Jesus would go to the cross. And in going to the cross, Jesus would take upon himself the debt of sin that we owed. He would take on himself our debt. Right? He who knew no sin became sin. In other words, Jesus took on our pride. Jesus took on our lust. Uh, Jesus took on our idolatry. Jesus took on our greed. Jesus took on our violence. Jesus took on our shame. And all our sin was placed on Jesus. And in going to the cross, Jesus not only took on our sin, but he paid the price that our sin deserved. You know, in the Gospel of John, it says that as Jesus hung on that bloody cross, amidst the separation, amidst the shame, amidst the public humiliation, amidst his suffering physically and spiritually, as he hung on that cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Those words, it is finished, may be the sweetest words in all of Scripture. It's a translation of the Greek word to telestai. And what does that word mean? Well, actually, it's a term ordinarily used in an accounting context. Um, if you had an outstanding debt against your name, but the word to telestai was written across it, that would mean that your debt was paid in full. Think about it. With Jesus' last breath on the cross, he was declaring that the sin of this woman, her debt and your debt and my debt, which stood on the eternal record against us, the record that warranted our judgment and debt was now through his life and death paid in full. Paid in full, not by us, by Jesus, who is our eternal and glorious Savior. Jesus lived a life that you and I could not live, a life that is free from sin, and Jesus died the death that we should have died, the death for sin. And if that is true, and I'm convinced it is, 
then the cost of our sin, which wreaked havoc on our relationship with God, has now, in Jesus, been satisfied in full. What does that mean? It means that we can freely and humbly and courageously turn from our old life of sin, shame, and guilt and enter into the presence, the love, the peace, the forgiveness, the joy, the life that is ours in Christ. In Jesus, the love, acceptance, and righteousness that is His can now by faith be the love, acceptance, and righteousness in your life. It can belong to you. You know, after pouring out the perfume and kissing the feet of Jesus, he turns to her and says these beautiful words. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Could there be anything more important in your life right now than the salvation of Jesus and his peace? Could there be anything more anchoring, more empowering to know the steadfast and security of his love and his life, right? This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus invites you to, right? Perhaps you're listening in, perhaps you're tuning in right now and you've known Jesus for some time. Can I encourage you as you reflect on this word today, as you see this woman, as you look upon your Savior, that you would lean into and swim into the grace that is yours. You know, I know that there are times in my Christian walk, and I've been following Jesus now for, well, for many years, but I've, I've realized that there are times in my life where doubt begins to creep on in times in which temptation can cling at you, times where you stumble and fall short of the man that you were called to be. And I know from my own journey and serving as a pastor with others that when that happens, it's very tempting to just jump on a religious treadmill, believing that if I just try harder, if I just do better, if I just work harder, then God's acceptance will be on the other side of my own perfection and my own performance right? But here's the truth. Here's what Jesus wants you to know. God's acceptance isn't dependent upon you having it all together. God's acceptance isn't dependent upon you ticking all the right religious boxes. God's grace is right there at the foot of Jesus and the cross which he endured for you. Now, does Jesus Wants you to abandon sin and pursue a life of holiness? Absolutely. Absolutely. But God's love is not conditional on our good works, for it is by grace that you have been saved. Right? As God's Spirit says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The question is not, are you living a perfect life and keeping a perfect record? question is, are you in Jesus? Are you trusting Jesus? Are you at the foot of Jesus? Are you giving everything for Jesus? The answer is yes. Praise God. Praise God. 
Rest in him and praise God. Not only because he has rescued you from sin, but he's invited and welcomed and blessed you with his eternal life. You know, it'd be fitting for God to cast us away into eternal darkness. It would be fitting for him to send us out in our own sin and in the judgment we deserved. But by grace, you have been saved. In Christ, you have all that God has and can enjoy and know. If you are in Jesus, you've been welcomed in. Your record is clean. It doesn't matter how messed up the rearview mirror of your life. He loves you. He rejoices over you. He celebrates you. And we as Christians just get to enjoy him and to celebrate him. You know, as I think about this woman, you know, who, who recognizes the, the gospel and rejoices with everything, I'm, I'm inspired and I'm challenged, right? There's a genuine joy in her heart over what Jesus has done, right? This is not golf clap Christianity. This is not mild praise. This is a lavish and reckless love for Jesus that is personal and indeed public. Let me encourage you to remember who Jesus is and what he has done, right? If you were stuck in a pity party, if you're just muddling through life and, you know, blind to the, to, to the to glory of this grace, would you repent today of your unbelief? Would you see Jesus for who he truly is? And would you marvel at his goodness and grace? It's a grace that inspires Right, Jesus has come that we'd have life and have it to the full. If you're tuning in and perhaps you've never said yes to Jesus, then let me encourage you to take a step of faith today. It took a lot of courage for this woman. It took a lot of courage for her to enter into that room. Everything that she had in her life, to lay that down and to put it at the feet of Jesus. And yet she knew that Jesus was not only true news, he's good news of great joy. If you want to give your life to Jesus, let me encourage you to turn from your life of sin and entrust yourself to him, to say yes to Jesus. You know, if you're joining us at Church Online, you'll see a little, uh, a, a little prompt to raise a hand for Jesus. Let me encourage you right now to click that. Let that be an act of faith, demonstrating your desire to, to give yourself to Jesus, to trust and worship Jesus. And we'd love to connect with you. We'd love to help you. We'd love to pray with you and and talk about what it means to make Jesus central in your life. And if you're not with us at Church Online, you can also just let us know by typing yes in the Facebook stream or YouTube stream. Reach out. Jesus is reaching out to you. He loves you and he's got good news of great joy. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we thank you for this vivid, Ah, rich imagery of grace. We thank you for this woman that you blessed and changed. And we thank you for Jesus, the one who made a way, the one who rescues, the one who pauses grace upon grace. We thank you for Jesus' life. We thank you for Jesus' death. And we thank you for his resurrection. Lord, give us eyes to see, hearts to respond, 
Help us to trust Jesus, to look to Jesus and celebrate his amazing grace. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.